Beloved, it's time for us to give our attention to God's Word. When we give our attention to God's Word, we give our attention to God Himself because He speaks through His Word. And so as we used to say in elementary school, let's, let's pray so we can put our, our listening ears on and our thinking caps on so that we might see Jesus clearly. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we pray, help us to see you. Remove the distractions, the disappointments, the discouragements. Help us to flee the temptations, deliver us from the trials. Lord, prevent the cares of the world from choking out the seed of your word. The enemy who would snatch it from us even before we have it take root, Lord, we pray, bind the enemy and cause your word to root in our hearts and water it and let it bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Do this not in just some religious way so that we are more religious persons. Do this in a spiritual way. Revive us. Let us see you and behold you and your goodness and your glory. Let us come near to you and sup with you. Let us even now, Lord, know personal fellowship with you through the preaching and the listening to of your word. We need you, Jesus. We need you. Speak to us. Help us. Bless us by your word, we pray. Let us behold you, we ask. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. To punish me for my contempt for authority, fate made me an authority myself. Those are the words of Albert Einstein, a brilliant scientist who is named, whose name today is still viewed as a kind of authority on scientific matters. And as was his witty way, sometimes he he expresses here a troubled relationship with authority. He says, I, I have contempt for authority. I have contempt for expertise. I have contempt for those in a power. And to punish me for that contempt, fate turned me into an authority myself. Life is ironic like that sometimes and human relationships to authority are intriguing sometimes. Some people like Einstein really dislike authority. and Sometimes they still end up being authorities themselves. Other people like authority too much. They rush to it, they look to grasp it and to have it. And the worst thing we can see is for such authoritarians to be placed in positions of authority. But both rejecting authority and idolizing it are both problems. God has made the universe with authority wired into it, so we need a proper response to it. I mean, from the moment we are born, we, we come beneath the authority of our parents, don't we? And the moment we become parents, we we take then a position of authority in the lives of the children that God has entrusted us to. As children, we grow, and part of our growth is coming into contact with more forms of authority, different sources of authority. So pretty soon, we not only are under the authority of our parents, but also under the authority of our teachers. 
our coaches. And then perhaps at some point we have interactions with other forms of authority like policemen or politicians. We exist in a web of interlocking authorities. It's inescapable. It's how the Lord has made the world. If we run from authority, we get captured by it. If we run to it, we may be abused by it. But we cannot escape it. So the challenge really is to come under the correct authority, legitimate authority that uses its power legitimately. Where can such legitimacy be found? Well, in human societies, finding legitimate authority, authority exercised legitimately, is sometimes a rare occurrence. That's why we long for it, even if we are nervous about it. That's what kind of resonates in the hearts of people watching the Chauvin trial. There's the longing for justice, which is the appropriate use of authority. There's the, the glimpsing of it in this particular case, and the simultaneous recognition of the misuse of it in another. So our hearts keep yearning, we keep longing, we keep facing disappointments, we sometimes uh, receive triumphs, but then we find ourselves right back in trial. And it's that longing, those disappointments that are meant to point us away from human society to heaven's society. For it's there in heaven's society that we find both legitimacy and authority, love and righteousness, truth and mercy, all the perfections combined in one person. In our text this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of Jesus again. We're going to see him in Mark chapter 11, verses 27, down to chapter 12, verse 12. It's a section of scripture that, that brings into focus the question of Jesus' authority. Is it legitimate? How does he use it? Is it good? As we look at this section of scripture, we're going to observe two things about Jesus. That Jesus is a savior Number one, of unquestionable authority. He's a savior of unquestionable authority. We'll see that in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. And number two, Jesus is a savior of undefeated authority. Undefeated authority. We'll see that in the parable that's told in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And as we take a look at Jesus, I pray that we would love him more, and I pray that our damaged notions and experiences of authority might be healed as we look forward to the promise of being fully under his authority. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He has still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent, to, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus is a savior of unquestionable authority. Our text opens with Jesus and the disciples walking into Jerusalem and into the temple for worship. You see that in verse 27. And as they enter the temple area, they are met by the scribes, the priests, and the elders. These are members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling council over the temple in Jerusalem. It's made up of 71 members. And this is probably a, a delegation of the Sanhedrin who meet the Lord on the way into the temple. It just reminds you that sometimes Satan's sitting on the church steps waiting on you. And so they come, and these religious leaders are, are remembered now. They're the ones in charge of the temple area. They're the ones who oversee the court of the Gentiles, which we talked about last week, where money was exchanged and livestock was sold to all these folks making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And as we saw in our sermon last week, Jesus had cleansed the temple, running out of the temple area, those folks who sold the livestock, turning over the tables of the money changers. And so now the Sanhedrin's money is funny because he has sort of interrupted all of that commerce, running people out of the court of the Gentiles. Remember, he called that very court, said it should have been a house of prayer for all nations, but they had turned it into a den of thieves. Well, these are the boss thieves come to confront Jesus. Verse 28, they ask Jesus a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? Now, these things is, probably has in view what we just talked about, Jesus cleansing the temple. But ever since chapter 2, Jesus has been talking about um, the fact that judgment is coming upon the religious leaders. And he's been teaching the people that, that God is going to bring judgment. So these things is probably also referring to his, his teaching about the, the leadership society. 
Now, when you read the Gospels, you see that the Jewish religious leaders were people who cared a lot about authority. Hence this question. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And specifically, they cared about their own authority. That's how they remained in power. They were the religious gatekeepers. And, and the sort of use of authority is, is how they guarded their domain. They wanted to decide who was in and who was out. They loved control and loved being in charge, loved being seen to be in charge. The Lord Jesus threatened all of that with his teaching and his cleansing of the temple. They want to know who died and left him in charge. Now the question is asked in two parts there in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? That's part one. They're asking Jesus if he has an authority uh, from other, some other source. Or who gave you this authority to do that? Right? They, they wanted if some other human authority, perhaps one of them, has, has delegated to him the ability to do what he has been doing. Do you have your own authority, or has one of us given you some authority? And in all this, they are probably assuming that Jesus' authority is not from God, but it's from some other human beings. Now, one of the differences between human authority and divine authority is that human authority almost always comes from outside of ourselves from some other higher authority. Somebody has to give us authority. Let me give you a few examples. Lawyers get their authority from the state bar. You can't practice law unless that higher authority of the bar gives them permission to do so. Doctors get their authority to practice medicine from the, the medical board. The police get their authority from the city council. The U.S. president gets his authority from the U.S. Constitution and the voters who elect him to office. See, in each of these examples, the right and the power to rule, what we call authority, the right and the power to rule comes from some other group or some other source outside of the person. That's almost always the case with human authority. But the Lord's right to rule, Jesus' authority, which is being questioned here by the Sanhedrin, well, it doesn't come from other human beings. It comes from within himself. It's an aspect of his deity. The closest human example we have to this is the authority that a parent might have over a child. They, they have authority over that child by virtue of the fact that they are parents. It's within them as parents to raise that child, lead that child, discipline that child, and so on. That's sort of what it's like to be God. Because he's God, because he's creator of all, he is ruler of all, the authority doesn't come to him from some source higher and outside of him. The authority comes from his very being. Now, this is the conflict that's happening on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem that day. They are questioning him about his authority, not realizing, not recognizing, not submitting to the fact that he is God and his authority isn't given, it is inherent. Notice that Jesus wasn't having it. He wasn't going to just be questioned by these folks. Jesus is like, I'm asking the questions today. Look with me at verses 29 to 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. 
And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, the Lord doesn't just right off refuse to answer their question. He puts a question to them. And it's a condition. He says, I will answer your question if you answer mine. Already with that response, he's, in, he's indicating that he's not under their authority. They have no rule over him. They must first answer his question. And it's a question designed to reveal their heart, not just their theology. It's designed to, to, to sort of uh, identify whether they even recognize the authority of God, the authority of heaven, when it's at work among them. And the question was this, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now think about the baptism of John. John is Jesus' cousin. He's born in a miraculous situation, much the way Jesus was. He is older than Jesus. He comes before Jesus. He is the promised forerunner. His entire ministry was to prepare Israel to receive their Messiah. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance and preparation. And the people came out in droves to be baptized by John because they recognized that, that John was sent from God, that John was a prophet. And so when Jesus asked this question, he's really asking the money question. Do you recognize that John's ministry was a ministry from God and therefore meant to be accepted? Or do you think it was just the fancy ideas of men? Now think about, think about Jesus' strategy here. He asked a question designed to test the sincerity of their hearts. He will only answer them if they answer him sincerely. But apart from that, he has no obligation to engage the insincere. I think we can learn from that. Let me say it again. Jesus here has no obligation to engage the insincere. Some of us are asking questions of God and we're not getting answers because we're not being sincere. We're not asking honest questions. We're not actually revealing our true motive. We're asking religious questions or we're asking questions in forms that we think are religiously acceptable, but we're not just raw and honest and open before God. Some of us, our real question is, how long, Lord? Our real question is a complaint against the Lord. Our real issue and question is a brokenness that we want to be delivered from, but we talk about cuter, prettier, religious things rather than being honest before the Lord and God doesn't join us in our insincere games. We ask the Lord, but often our motives aren't right. And so we don't get what we're asked for. That's what James 4.3 teaches, isn't it? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, we ask the Lord, but not with, not with genuine faith, not with stable faith. That's what James addresses in James chapter 1, verses Five to eight. You remember the promise there? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see? The Lord is not obligated to answer unbelieving or selfish requests. Sometimes what we, what we ask Jesus is a smokescreen for something else we care about or something else that we want or something else that we're protecting. The Sanhedrin asked about his authority, but they're really trying to protect their own authority. They're trying to stay in power. So the question is really an attack, not a real question. Now, Jesus' example of only answering sincere questions is not only good as a check on our spirits to make sure we are honest before God in prayer, but it's also a good example to follow. We won't do it as skillfully as Jesus does it here, but if we learn to test the sincerity of others with well-placed questions, we'll save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of headaches. Let me give you an example. In evangelism, for example, I've often been asked questions by Muslim friends. Sometimes the questions have really just been smoke screens for other things they want to try and get to, they want to try and talk about in a way of, of trying to discredit Christianity. And I'll answer one question and they'll jump over here to another. I'll answer that question and they'll flip back over here to something else. And so I've learned to just sort of say, hey, listen, if I can answer all of your questions to your complete satisfaction, would you bow the knee and worship Jesus? That has a way of cutting through the fall and helping me to understand whether or not that person is sincere or not. Or, or use another example. We can use questions like this to end the endless debates about social issues and politics, for example. Just cut through the smoke. Ask something like this. If I could give you all the information you need to feel confident you should take blank position. Would you today become an active advocate for this cause? Right? Because if I gave you all the information you need so that you could feel fully confident and you still wouldn't adjust your position or advocate for this cause, okay, something else is at work. It's not really an intellectual question. It's not really an honest question. There's something else that you either want to debate or something else you want to defend. Let's just talk about that and quit pretending. Right? So Jesus uses a strategy here that not only exposes the hearts of the Sanhedrin, but a strategy that's helpful for us. When we ask helpful diagnostic questions, we can have more honest conversations. But notice that the Lord's questions about John's baptism, it puts the religious leaders in a, in a difficult position. They call a huddle in verse 31. They knew if they answered heaven, they would condemn themselves because they didn't believe John and, and they rejected John's ministry. And they also knew if they answered man, then the crowds would condemn them because the, the crowds believed that John was indeed a prophet. And, and, and right there in that verse, the word where it says uh, they, they sort of gather together and, and talk together, that word could be translated connived. Give us another clue. They're not sincere. They're conniving. They're giving a DC answer. Uh, the Lord asks a yes or no question, and they don't come back, well, I, I, I don't know. They're trying to take a, an easy way out. They're trying to escape the trap. They could have been sincere and said from heaven and repented 
and believe the authority of God coming through John. They could have been sincere and said, man, if that's what they really believe and rejected that authority. But they took the position of a Philadelphia lawyer, of a D.C. politician. They took the cowardly role. They answered, we do not know. They're kind of worse than little children who get in trouble and cover for each other. You know, maybe three, four, five of them doing something they ain't got no business doing. There might be kind of one ringleader who put them up to it and they get busted. And the adult says, hey, you know, who did so-and-so? And, and, and the ringleader knows, like, we don't know. And look around us like, we, we don't know, do we? We don't know. You know, they just think the parents' brains just been sucked out of their head telling that falsehood. The religious leaders are just as ridiculous standing before Jesus talking about, we don't know, we don't know. Everybody knows it's insincere. Mark wants us to know that. And everybody knows that insincerity with God does not work. The religious leaders tried with Jesus, but notice how Jesus keeps it moving. Because they refused to answer him, Jesus refused to answer them, just as he said. Verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, beloved, try to hear those words not as clap back. Try to hear those words not as a, a gotcha moment. Try, try to feel the tremendous tragedy and sadness of these words. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These religious leaders, because of their insincerity, and the people who followed them could have had Jesus explain to them the mysteries of God's divine authority. They could have had Jesus tell them about his glory, his Deity, his power, his sovereignty, his majesty, his relationship with the Father from whom he gets his authority. But they missed out on the revelation of all of that. They missed out on it because that's revealed in the Son of God. They missed out on it because they weren't honest and because they were afraid of men rather than God. It's impossible to know how much might have been given to them if they had just been honest. It's impossible to know how much we might receive from Jesus if we would just be honest with him. But Jesus' refusal to answer shows that the religious leaders have really, really cannot question his authority. It's, it's unquestionable that he is the one who is in authority here. They have no power over him as religious leaders, neither do political leaders. You remember what Jesus says when he's before Pilate. You, you, you can do nothing to me except that it was given to you by my Father in heaven. Who are these clay creatures to challenge the creator of the cosmos? His authority is unquestionable. When I read the words of Jesus in verse 33, I can't help but think of 
God's words to Job near the end of that book. You remember how God asked a long string of questions over the course of about four chapters near the end of Job. He's putting an end to the questions and the speculations about him. And we could put God's words from Job, spoken to Job, we could really put those words on the lip of Jesus speaking to these religious leaders. It drives home the same point. For example, Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? You see what God does? Ask some questions that put Job in his place, and that's what Jesus has done with these religious leaders. And what these religious leaders needed and what we needed in our conversation with Jesus is the kind of humble response that Job gives to God as that questioning goes on. Job chapter 40, for example, verses 3 to 5, and then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, Okay, I'm done. I won't put my hand over my mouth. I ain't saying nothing else because you are God and in your presence, I have nothing. I'm small and of no account. How about us? Religious leaders don't do that. Job does. Which are, which are we more like, the religious leader or Job? Do we respond to Jesus' authority over our lives the way Job does, I am nothing, put my hand over my mouth. The way the religious leaders does, conniving, politicking, trying to find a loophole. Are we questioning Jesus' authority? Or are we submitting to it? Friend, his authority is unquestionable because it comes from within himself, because he is God, and because we are his creatures. Infinitely better to submit to it than to resist it. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus is a savior of undefeated authority. Not only unquestionable authority, but undefeated authority. And this is what we see in the parable in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Jesus's comments to those religious leaders didn't end at the end of verse or at the end of chapter 11, the, the chapter break there is unfortunate. You should just keep reading. It's all part of the same story. He tells him a parable. Now, a parable is a short story with one major point. Uh, it's, it's kind of a symbolic story uh, that's meant to sort of drive home, you know, one, one big issue. So everything in the parable isn't meant to have some literal application uh, or some literal specific meaning. It's all meant to sort of take the weight of the story and, you know, drive home that one point. 
When Jesus tells a parable about the owner of a vineyard and his tenants. Let's read that parable together. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the story that Jesus tells, and he gives us the punchline in verse 9. Now, in the parable, the, the owner represents God. He's the one who owns the vineyard. The vineyard is the kingdom of God, or it might be Israel. So if you look at Isaiah 5, 1 and 2, there Isaiah and many other prophets describe Israel as God's vineyard. He has prepared this vineyard. He's placed everything in it for uh, people to enjoy. The tenants in the parable represent the Jewish religious leaders. They act like they own the vineyard. They are not acting as stewards. They are trying to take it for themselves and not give to God what he deserves as the owner. They are resisting the owner's authority. The servants are the prophets that God sent to Israel, many of them, again and again and again, to teach them God's word. Some they beat, some they killed. And the son in the story is the son of God. He, too, is the heir. He is the owner. And, and the owner reasons, if I send my son, they will recognize his authority. They will recognize his ownership, and surely they will treat him better. But they don't. They kill him. It's striking. In this story, the owner simply wants what is due to him as the owner, to enjoy the fruits of the vineyard along with those he has entrusted leadership to. Again, the, the, the tenants want to take it for, for themselves. They kill all the prophets, many others. They kill even the son. Now, pause for a moment here and think about what this story teaches us about the character of God. Before we talk about the main point of the parable, think about what's being revealed about God. What kind of God gives an already prepared vineyard to tenants who didn't help to prepare it, who didn't help to buy it, and allows them to rule it? What kind of God sends servant after servant after servant to appeal to the tenants? Even when they beat the servants and 
kill the servants, he sends more. And what kind of God, after all of those servants have been beaten and killed and treated disrespectfully, says, I'm going to give them my very own son. I will send my son to them as well. Knowing the murderous tendency of these tenants. The parable teaches us that God is long-suffering. He is patient. He persistently pursues his people, even when they are rejecting him, as the religious leaders do. It, it must be that people who think God is an angry old man and mean simply have not considered how patient and persistent he truly is. If you're not yet a Christian and you have been rejecting Jesus and you are still breathing, every breath is like God sending you another servant to appeal to you, to humble yourself and submit to him. He is long-suffering. But verse 9 gives us the punchline of the story. The, 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 the verse says there, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's beloved, rejecting God's messengers and God's son can only end in judgment because it is rejecting God's authority. We, we can reject Jesus' authority but we cannot defeat it. The, the owner comes and he destroys those who rejected it. In fact, we only defeat ourselves. Our judgment is a result of our refusing God's authority over us, not of God using his authority over us. Get that clear? Our, our damnation, our judgment, uh, our eternal suffering in hell is a result of us Re refusing God's authority over us, not a result of God using his authority over us. Well, the way he uses it is always legitimate, always good. That's what the religious leaders miss. They think rejecting Jesus gains them something. They think rejecting God's authority gains them something. But the one they reject will actually be the cornerstone of the kingdom. Notice what Mark writes quotes there, verses 10 to 11. It's a quote from Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which we read as our call to worship. <clears throat> the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It truly is marvelous. Jesus is the stone that the religious leaders rejected. They, they threw him away. But God picks him as the cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is the first stone that you lie in a build, you, you lay in a foundation. Uh, it is meant to be laid level so that the rest of the foundation will be level. And it's meant to be laid level so that it will support the superstructure of the building, the walls, the roof, and things of that sort. Well, Jesus now here is the cornerstone of God's temple. He's the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And everything else is built upon him. 
God chose the one that man's reject in order to include the ones that are in danger of being rejected. It's marvelous that God takes throwaway persons, takes his son who was thrown away, and makes him the savior of the world. That in his crucifixion, he is atoning for all of our sins. In his mocking and ridicule, being spat upon and beating, beaten, he is suffering the ridicule and the rejection that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. And the very act of his rejection and suffering becomes the act that redeems us, that pays the price for our sins and provides for us righteousness that we might enter into God's presence and be accepted forever as forgiven and righteous just through faith in the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Is that not marvelous? That we don't pay for our own sins? That we don't have to be perfectly righteous in and of ourselves? That, that we don't have to suffer the mocking, the ridicule, the beating, the death? that we deserve, but that Jesus has taken our place. And the very rejection that he suffered was the very means God used to redeem us. Oh, for those who believe it is marvelous in our eyes, and this was only the Lord's doing, it wasn't our doing. The songwriter marvels in this way when he writes, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Can you give an answer? The religious leaders should have stood amazed at what Jesus was teaching and, and would do. But instead, verse 12 says they wanted to arrest Jesus. They wanted to exert their authority over him. But they didn't. They didn't arrest him for the same reason. They didn't answer his question. They feared the people. You see how the fear of man is a snare, as Proverbs says? If we try to live our lives, sort of, you know, fear of what other people think, we will soon be in bondage. We will soon be trapped, and our lives will be fruitless. The fear of man was the motivating factor in their lives. Verse 12 says, they knew the parable was against them. They knew Jesus was telling them the truth about themselves. And instead of accepting the truth as it was told and repenting, they looked away from that, looked to the crowd, and took their cues from the crowd. Now, I, I want to suggest to you, make a point here. Sometimes the only thing holding us back from our darkest sin is our fear of public opinion. They would have arrested Jesus and killed Jesus almost fulfilling the parable as soon as he told it. But they didn't because they feared the crowd. Here's the thing. We sometimes fear exposure more than we fear sin. We, we, we fear man knowing the truth about us more than we fear the truth about us. <laughs> and in that way, beloved, if, if fear of man keeps us from our darkest sin, it is an interesting form of grace. It's not the highest form of grace. It's not the grace that saves us, but it is a grace that restrains us. I mean, the last gift of grace to these religious leaders was, was the crowd's opinion. 
Now, when these leaders break free of the crowd's opinion, having not repented and turned to Jesus, when they break free of that restraint, then they fall headlong into their sin. And so it is with us. This is the problem with um, things like, you know, I'm going to keep it a hundred. By which we mean we just go, go ahead and do what we want to do or say what we want to say. This is the problem with some notions of authenticity that are not tied to what the Bible says about us, but are tied to what we say about ourselves, sinfully sometimes. This is the problem with, you know, ain't no shame in my game. Shame is grace. It restrains us from sin. And if we throw it off, all that's left is for us to dive headlong into the deepest cracks of sin, the deepest, darkest pits of sin. Well, sometimes the fear of man is a kind of grace. Holds us back, keeps us in check. Until we learn to fear sin more than we fear man. So let me ask us this morning, what is our fear of others doing in our life? Is it keeping us from Jesus? Or keeping us from sin? Or both. That's what's happened with the Pharisees. They are kept both from Jesus and from sin for a time. Now, let me be really clear here. We, we should not let public opinion keep us from Jesus, ever. But we should let it keep us from sin. The question is, which is it doing in our lives? The fear of man. It's a snare and a trap. My friend, my neighbor, if you are tuned in this morning and you're not yet a Christian, your eternal destiny depends on what you do with Jesus and his authority in your life. There are only two ways to respond to a cornerstone like Jesus, the, the, the foundation on which God builds heaven and the kingdom of God and salvation. There are only two ways to respond to him. Either we accept him or we reject him. One of the men who were there that day when Jesus met these folks at the temple steps is a man named Peter. He's one of Jesus' most famous followers. He's an apostle, uh, a leader of the early church after Jesus' resurrection. He wrote two letters that are in the Bible. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he actually remembers this cornerstone issue and he actually lays out for us the two ways to respond to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. We can believe in Jesus and become a living stone joined to him as our cornerstone. If, if we believe in him, we become a spiritual temple and a holy priesthood through Jesus Christ. 
Did you see that? No one who believes in him will ever be put to shame, will never be dishonored before God, because they will not suffer God's judgment against sin. Jesus has suffered that for them. So we can believe in him and be saved and, and be a part of God's kingdom, or we can refuse to believe. We can disobey the word of the gospel, which tells us that we should repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. We can disobey, disobey that. And if we do that, if we disobey the gospel, we will not have honor like those who believe. We will have eternal shame, guilt, condemnation. We'll be judged guilty forever and suffer God's wrath for all eternity and separated from his kingdom and from his presence. The Son of God's authority over our lives, over our sin, over our righteousness, must either be believed or not believed. There is no little ground. My non-Christian friend, which do you choose today? Do you choose to obey the gospel by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, crucified, being raised from the grave, and ruling and reigning as Lord with all authority in heaven and earth? Or do you choose to disbelieve that, to disobey that, to reject that, and to suffer his judgment? I pray you would believe that you would choose faith, that you would place your hope in Jesus, escape the wrath of God to come and live forever in his kingdom. Let him be your cornerstone. Build your life upon him as your rock. And when the rains and the winds come, you will not fall. You will live. You will stand in God's grace and forgiveness. And you will receive honor from the God who has loved you from before the world's began. Believe on Jesus. And so be saved. And Christian, this teaching about Christ being the cornerstone, it applies to us too. In a lot of ways, but this passage about the cornerstone is quoted in other places in the New Testament. I want to take us to one other place, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, you may remember, uh, have healed a crippled man. And for doing that, the religious authorities, these same people we're reading about in Mark's gospel, have arrested them and is about to have a trial. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 5, down to verse 12, this is what we read. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? That sound familiar? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love Peter. He sometimes gets it so right. And when he gets it right with his bold self, it's beautiful. 
So Christian, we, we must embrace and submit to Jesus' authority as our cornerstone. Notice now, even when we are questioned or challenged, even when we are arrested for the faith, as Peter and John are in Acts chapter 4. And, and when we accept Jesus as our cornerstone and build our life upon him as our cornerstone, knowing that, that he is our rock, that there are at least two things that, that flow from that. Now, to stand on the cornerstone effectively, we have to know that the authority is not ours, but Jesus's. I love verse 10. Look at that again. Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. You see what Peter is doing? He's pointing away from himself. He's pointing to Jesus. He said, by that name, that's the authority. By that person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this miracle was performed. It's not me, it's Jesus. So stand on the cornerstone. We've got to keep pointing to Jesus. And the other thing to do, if we're going to stand on the cornerstone effectively, is we have to be clear that Jesus' authority, Jesus' name, is the only name that saves. You see that again in verse 12? Notice what um, Peter says there. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is absolutely clear. There's only one way to be rescued from God's coming judgment. That's what saved means. There's only one way to be uh, saved for God's enjoyment and the enjoyment of God. There's only one name, Jesus. The name that is above every name. The name that when it is sounded, every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the praise of God the Father. We can be ineffective because we think our authority instead of Jesus' authority is the thing. We get carried away with ourselves and we can be ineffective in Christian witness because we get blurry when we should get crystal clear. We start fearing man and trying to soften the, the hard teaching of Christianity like there's no other way to be saved except Jesus. We confuse people when we do that. We need to stand where Jesus stands. He's a only way of salvation from hell. And when we stand with Jesus, we don't have to worry about falling. He's our cornerstone. He's our rock. And Jesus is undefeated. That's why we're confident his promise to save will actually get us home to glory. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And those who submit not only survive, we also thrive under his authority. Those who resist, perish, because Jesus is undefeated. If you want victory over sin, the flesh, the world, the devil, believe in Jesus, the cornerstone. His authority is unquestionable. His authority is undefeated. He's worthy of our trust. Father, indeed, we praise you for Jesus, a matchless Savior. Nobody like him. Nobody can rival him. Nobody can challenge him. 
Nobody can confuse or confound him. Nobody can thwart him or delay him. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He is high and lifted up, exalted above all. His train fills the temple. His glory causes the earth to clap. We praise you for Jesus, so loving a Savior as to give his life for us, us undeserving sinners. We praise you for Jesus coming again to gather us as his bride to consummate his wedding, his spiritual union with us so that we are with him forever, beholding his face, feasting on the pleasures of his presence. Father, we praise you for sending your son after sending so many prophets that were rejected, sending at last your son, whom you knew would be rejected, but whom you knew you would also make the cornerstone. Oh, Lord, we praise you for so great a salvation. It is marvelous in our eyes. And today we worship you. Help us to worship you every day, we pray. In Jesus' name.